0: This is The Guardian. I'm Gabrielle Jackson coming to you from Gadigal land and this is The Full Story, Newsroom Edition, where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. The scheme that has been described as a shameful chapter in Australian history was supposed to save the government $1.5 billion. But after robo-debt was found to be unlawful, The government was forced to wipe any remaining unpaid debts and pay out $1.8 billion in settlements to victims. As the Royal Commission rolls on, further light has been shed on the failure of public servants, of politicians, and more than anything, on the unimaginable human cost. Today, the politics that drove a public policy fiasco. It's Friday, the 9th of December. Good morning, Lenore. Morning, Gabs. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. Lenore, the RoboDebt Royal Commission has been unfolding over the last few weeks, and it's shed even more light on what we already knew was a bit of a disaster. What have been the most revealing moments for you?
1: It's kind of revealing in its entirety, I guess, because it's really a policy failure on an almost unimaginable scale. We know it was using a process to sort of smooth out people's income. So it was all meant to save money, but actually it wound up raising $1.8 billion in debt that people didn't actually know. But at each layer, it's like the sort of banality of the administrative decisions that are taken, which when added together, become this policy that really devastated people's lives. And it's kind of How the failure happens, how politicians could get it so wrong, how the public service could fail in its advice so much, but not in an intentional way. Like no one ever got in a room and said, I know what we'll do. We're going to really, you know, get these debts out of people, even if they owe them or not. It happened by things falling between two different departments, the policy department and the delivery department. It happened by people ignoring advice. It happened by people not bringing advice to ministers or not in a way that ministers got it. It happened through this kind of administrative hodgepodge. And then I guess it looks a bit like trying to cover their tracks after they realised it was going wrong. And it's really that accumulation of tiny details that led to this huge problem and the absence of any processes to stop it, that is capturing my attention.
2: It draws attention to the, what the origin of this was, which was not to make a fair or fairer welfare system, but was to save money. Yeah. But it was to make a, a huge budget saving. two um,
1: million billion yeah. in the 2015 budget, From 20,
2: We're going right back to 2015, yeah. <laughs> yeah. when Scott Morrison was social security minister, was then became the treasurer in September 2015, and they promised to save this amount of money in the budget. So the premise is...
1: We've got to do it.
2: There's this saving that we can make through fraud, allegedly. Not there's a lot of fraud going on, we've undercovered, we should go after that fraud and by the by that'll save us a lot of money. The premise was we have to save a lot of money, (laughs) therefore we've got to uncover some fraud. Well, That's one reason why all the bureaucratic blame-shifting and... Uncertainties between the departments uncertainties about whether the you know questionable legal status of the whole program was not properly investigated or taken on board or overlooked
1: or kind of just got sort of fudged out over time like there was legal advice this is unlawful and then it just somewhere between late 2014 and the budget in 2015 it just kind of disappeared from the briefs somehow but nobody actually took that decision that we know of
2: yeah because the from the ministers to the public service was we have to save this money.
1: And then after the event, the thing that's also been really evident is that instead of examining their own decisions and examining why the backlash was happening and thinking about, why wow, did we stuff this up, the bureaucrats were sort of intent on justifying what they'd done. And their then head of human services, Catherine Campbell, was back on the stage this week. And she was the one who gave a speech where she was sort of joking about it and saying, Oh, you know, don't ever send out letters in January because there's not much happening and you'll find that it's the only headline in town. And I kept thinking, where are those cricketers when you need them doing something naughty? But they were well behaved that year. So she saw it as a messaging problem and a media problem. And she was trying to explain that and saying, oh, she meant, you know, she shouldn't have been personally involved in sending out the letters to the people who allegedly had debts. But in that is also this lack of accountability, lack of self-reflection on the part of the department Mm. when it was all so clearly going very, very wrong.
0: And there was also a revealing moment when they got some legal advice in draft form and it said basically the scheme was unlawful, so they ignored it. Yeah. The
1: government lawyers warned that it was going to be illegal right back in 2014 when it first started. There was more advice later. Then there was external advice from Clayton Yutz saying it was unlawful, but somehow all of that advice was discarded in sort of rush in the desire to make it happen.
0: So what do we know about Scott Morrison's role in all of this, Mike?
2: So we know that Scott Morrison took up the scheme enthusiastically in his fairly brief term as social services minister between 2014 and 2015 as treasurer. After that, he was obviously very keen on budget savings, as all treasurers are, and I think most of the public speaking on it at that time was done more by Christian Porter, who followed Morrison as social services minister. Porter talked about how he'd been impressed with the enhanced ability to use new technology and data platforms to work out where the debt is and then recover the debt.
3: From what we've seen, in a high-volume system, it's actually working incredibly well. Now, they will, from time to time. The no. central
2: question is, are these savings achievable? I absolutely consider that they are. And more than that, it's the right thing to do.
3: We're not seeing any sort of spike or increase in the type of usual complaints that we would get.
2: It's not about trusting me as a minister. These figures are worked through at arm's length through the tax office based on their recent experience and the application of new technology they've got. So they were like portraying it as a way to apply technology to an old problem of welfare fraud, which of course has been a hobby horse of many governments for decades. And and I think this really sort of goes to the heart of what the problem is. There was an assumption that either through deliberate fraud or through inadvertent means, people were rorting the system, basically. That way of looking at welfare recipients as a problem, as a burden on the budget, rather than as people who are down the bottom of the income scale and mostly need support to get into work or to support themselves while they can't work, that's at the heart of this whole problem.
1: Yeah, but specifically on Scott Morrison, there was evidence that he was actually told back in 2015 when the scheme was being developed that there wasn't a legal basis for it. There was an executive minute saying that income averaging this process did represent a policy change and therefore it could only go ahead if the law was changed. It was part of a really big brief so and it wasn't highlighted so it's not clear whether he really clocked it and then in later discussions we know senior bureaucrats didn't bring it to his attention and then this week it was revealed that in, as the budget process progressed that advice actually dropped out of what he was being told Mm. remember that's what the government was saying all the time this started long before us this this process was this data matching was happening before us but they'd been advised that wasn't true and then sort of over time as the budget became closer that advice dropped away and they became sort of more confident that it was wasn't a new policy and you know it could all just sort of slide through
2: that argument that it had been happening for decades was always highly dubious. Yeah. Data matching had been happening for decades. But not but in, like but this. But previously, when the discrepancy had been found between someone's, what looked like a discrepancy on their whole of year income against what they were claiming as benefits. If a discrepancy was found, then it would be investigated. You'd look at their pay slips a and so on. A real person actual would, pay person attention. would look at it, yeah. Not just a computer would send out a, a debt notice saying you owe us, in some cases, extremely large amounts of money.
1: And that was what our inequality reporter, Luke Henry case discovered in a big trove of documents released to the Royal Commission. One email from a fairly low-level Centrelink worker who actually wrote to the head of her department to pull her up on this and say, this isn't how we used to do it and this new system is having terrible effects. The head of department had said, this is what we've been doing successfully for many years, nothing's changed. And the the worker called Colleen Taylor said, actually, this isn't how we've been doing it before. Previously, we would look for the information, a human being would be involved, and she highlighted the problems that the scheme was having at her level, on the front line. And then there was, you know, there was some kind of meeting with her, but basically her concerns were dismissed. So people implementing it could see that it wasn't working and were very clear that it was different from what they did before, but the higher-ups disregarded it.
2: There was one sentence in particular that really cut through and was quite at odds with the way that the officials have been talking in the Royal Commission, where she says, as a compliance unit, we should not be the ones stealing from our customers. <laughs> yeah,
1: da-da. And I was like, <laughs> yeah.
2: Then True. The yeah. response to that was that she was portrayed as, quote, identified strongly with customers and expressed that customers should be given the benefit of the doubt by her superiors. And that's a really telling And also she didn't
1: understand the capabilities of the system. I mean, that kind of tells you what you need to know.
2: But that sort of mindset that you shouldn't identify with the people who are welfare recipients, you should identify with the government, I guess, or the department or or Centrelink as an organisation to retrieve this money and bugger the... Recipients is just really quite damning, It comes I think.
0: back to the original idea of the policy, doesn't it? Like this idea that the point is to save money, not to think about people and mm. how to support mm. them. And another really shocking moment, Lenore, was when they discovered that the ombudsman had actually put their report to the department and Mm, allow them mm. to change the report. What happened there?
1: So when the horror stories about Robert Debt were mounting in 2017, so, you know, like it was well underway, the ombudsman investigated and reported on it and basically gave it a more or less clean bill of health, said there were some administrative things that should be cleaned up, but certainly gave the green light to the central premise, said it was okay, just needed a bit of tweaking. And that report was then used by the government and the department to justify the scheme. But then through the Royal Commission it's come out that twice the Department of Human Services was given the opportunity to mark up the Ombudsman's report, so actually sort of edited. It seems like going well beyond the sort of right of reply that oversight bodies like the Ombudsman or the Audit Office usually give departments. And so one person from the Department of Human Services said they'd been given a great opportunity to effectively co-write the report with the Ombudsman's Office and another one boasted in an application for another job that he'd helped shape the ombudsman's report. So the oversight body wasn't doing its job either, which I find quite shocking. I mean, if you go to what the ombudsman's supposed to do, the very first thing it says under About Us is that their job is to provide assurance that the Australian government entities act with integrity and treat people fairly. Mm.
0: Well,
1: that didn't work very well, did it? Mm.
0: This has been called a shameful moment in Australia's history. And you mentioned before the incredible human toll, Mike. What do we know about how this affected people who were issued with the debt?
2: We know a lot. We've reported on people with intellectual disabilities who were sent debt notices for large amounts of money We've reported on a mother whose, whose son had died, who was harassed over the phone for his debt. We've reported on people who've committed suicide, at least in part because of the pressure from Centrelink over debts. We ran a piece last month from a guy called Nathan Carney about his experience with having two robo-debts and how he'd been working casual jobs multiple jobs over the period when he was claiming benefits, not doing anything wrong, kind of drove him into really desperate situations and he wrote about how he felt about watching the start of the Royal Commission and what he wanted to happen and it's just a really strong reminder, I think, that all that has a really direct human impact on a lot of people and some of the most vulnerable people in society.
1: And when you think back to how it was being portrayed then, the pressure on those people who had had a debt raised against them would have been intense. Like the the then Human Services Minister, Alan Tudge, was on TV in 2016 when it was really being ramped up and said,
3: we will find you, we will track you down and you will have to repay those debts and you may end up in prison.
1: I mean, if you'd had a debt raised against you, you had no savings and you couldn't see how you were going to pay it back and you heard the minister saying that on television, it would be
0: pretty terrifying. So what happens next, Lynne, or where are we in the Royal Commission process? I think this is the end of the second block of hearings. There's two more blocks of hearings
1: next year. Next week, we will hear from two ministers, Maurice Payne and Scott Morrison. There are other ministers who might well be called next year, Christian Porter, Alan Tudge, Stuart Robert. The now government has agreed to pay legal fees associated with any appearances by those ministers before the Royal Commission. There was a bit of argy-bargy this week by Scott Morrison's counsel, arguing he needed to be able to use Cabinet in Confidence submissions to sort of protect his own legacy, if you like, so they could demonstrate a collective decision of government following a proper process rather than a decision of an individual minister. So it's pretty clear where his evidence is likely to go. The Royal Commission has said no to the carte blanche um, availability of cabinet incompetence documents that said she might consider it on a case-by-case basis. So I think we're getting to the very pointy end of it and we're going to see to what extent or whether that advice about the illegality actually got to ministers and to what extent they actually considered the people who were being affected by the policies that they were putting into action. I mean, so that's what's coming up. It's Mm -hmm. going to be really fascinating.
0: What are the lessons that we've learned so far,
1: Mike? I guess there are micro lessons
2: and macro lessons, and there are lots of micro lessons about how departments should take on legal advice, for example, yeah. <laughs> when, when, with how that should be conveyed to ministers. But maybe the macro lesson, which is harder to see, is about our... Whole welfare system and how we how we think about welfare. I don't think we've seen a philosophical change. Although there's no suggestion that the current government is introducing anything like robo debt, but there hasn't been a big philosophical change in how we think about welfare as a cost. Which obviously we do have to think about it as a cost to the budget. It's not insignificant, but also about how, especially in a time of extremely low unemployment, we could rethink it so that we were directing resources towards people who are on benefits rather than you know treating it as a as solely as a cost
1: i wonder if the reviews that senator pocock achieved in mm. in response for his support for the ir bill might go a little way towards keeping it on the agenda. But I actually also think there's a lesson out of this in terms of just public administration because it's just such a colossal failure of public administration and the extent to which the public service is still able to give frank and fearless advice and the extent to which the public service actually takes responsibility for the policies that they're advising on and implementing. There weren't clear lines of responsibility here. There wasn't ever anybody who said, actually stood back and looked at the cabinet submission and actually asked the question, is this legal? Um, the idea that legal advice saying it wasn't legal could just kind of fall through the cracks is astonishing to me. And then going to that question of what they did when the evident problems started to arise, they were intent on justifying it. I haven't seen anything through the Royal Commission that suggests that when really terrible stories were emerging about the impact of this policy that anyone in the public service, other than the you know people quite low down, were saying, wait a minute, did we get this wrong? There was no self-reflection. So I do think there is a lot of soul-searching to be done by the public service to understand exactly what went wrong with their procedures and to think about how they don't give appalling advice like this again.
2: Mm. I mean, just to go back to Colleen Taylor, the uh, public official who did try to warn her superiors about the consequences of it, she told Luke Enrique Scombes, our reporter this week, uh, I did say this is the sort of thing that ends up in a royal commission. <laughs> so maybe yep. people who don't want to be hauled up before a royal commission and subjected to quite excruciating cross examination should listen when they.
1: When m- someone m- on the call says this yeah, isn't working. Exactly.
0: Next, all the noise that's fit to print. Now we come to what we can't get out of our head. And this week, what we can't get out of our head are Nick's noisy charts. We have with us Nick Evershed, our data editor, to explain what they are. Nick, what are your noisy charts?
3: Yeah, thanks, Gabs. So the noisy charts is a new way for us to um, take our data journalism work to new audiences, So it's part a project to bring our charts into audio for vision-impaired people, and it's also part project to bring our data journalism to podcasts or video or social media where a static chart might not work very well.
0: Lenore, do you have a noisy chart you'd like to hear? I do. I really like the noisy chart that shows the decline in Mark
1: Zuckerberg's average net worth per quarter As Facebook's share price fell. That's my favourite noisy chart.
3: I'll just play that one real quick.
1: (laughs) 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 It almost makes me feel sorry for him. Not really.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so this, this chart actually uses the sad trombone setting, which was designed to show off that this can be used for, you know, entertaining charts as well as much more serious things.
0: Mike, what chart would you like to hear?
2: Since we've had what feels like now about a month without any rain in Sydney, I would like to look back on that period when it wasn't like that and we had record-breaking rainfall
3: in Sydney. Okay, I'm just going to play that one. The lowest value on the chart is zero and the highest value on the chart is... 2,364 millimetres of rain and each note is a day from the 1st of January onwards.
1: I actually find that noise setting kind of anxiety-inducing. But then I guess the rain was too, right?
3: It was. uh, And I've actually experimented with versions that make it even more anxiety-inducing. Why? Why? Uh, it's it's like a contextual thing. So, for example, with climate change, I tried it out with um, a synth setting, which kind of made you a bit more nervous, even, even more so. Um, so it's just kind of exploring the different facilities of this new medium.
1: Have you had much feedback on it from vision impaired people or people to whom you've been directing it?
3: Uh, yeah, I've, I have actually. So I had a really good conversation with the um, Royal Institute for the Blind in the UK who are very interested in working on this and trying to get it out there. Um, so we're going to see if we can, you know, partner together at some point and do a bit more work on the accessibility side of it.
1: It's so great, Nick. We don't call you Nick Clevershed for nothing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thanks for joining us today, Nick.
3: No worries. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Lenore. Thanks. Thanks, Mike. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert and Camilla Hannon. As usual, I will beg you to leave a rating or review because it really, really helps other people find us. The executive producer of this episode is me, Gabrielle Jackson. Full story will be back with you on Monday. We'll see you then.